order to provide a welcoming environment for everyone, we ask that attendees refrain from any language or behavior that threatens the well-being of our members. Safety in meetings is a cornerstone of ACA. Some adult children have not grown beyond their victim or victimizer roles from childhood. They tend to meet their own needs through the manipulation of other ACA members. Such manipulation is often referred to as the 13th step. It violates the safety of our program and is not part of our meeting. Thanks, Elizabeth. My name is Andy. I'm an alcoholic, an adult child, and an Al-Anon. And uh, we're just working on the audio-visual thing. This meeting is being recorded, I guess, so if you uh, have any objection to that, get out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, does anybody have any objection to that? It's for the club, I guess. Um, so I have an off-color joke. I'm as nervous as a hooker in church. <laughs> Sorry to offend any hookers out here. Um, thanks for indulging us uh, with, or indulging me, I guess, on the, the preamble of, of ACA. Um, I'm going to talk about all the programs that I'm involved in, ACA, Al-Anon, and, and AA. AA was my first uh, recovery program that I worked. I went to my first Al-Anon meeting when I was uh, in the second grade. How old are you then? Like eight? I mean, I tagged along with my mom, but um, so I'm a... I'm a 42-year member of Al-Anon. Uh, <laughs> I'm a 55-year member of ACA, and I guess a 55 member of, of Al-Anon, but an active member for since June 3rd, 2001. Uh, so I got sober in, in June 3rd of 2001. I just celebrated 18, and um, I'm, I was reminded of a story uh, that um, I got. Uh, I was having a meeting with another alcoholic late at night, um, you know, you just need one resentment, two alcoholics, and you can have a meeting. Mm -hmm. So I was coming home from that. I got sober in Petaluma, and uh, my sponsor's here. He wanted me to talk about him, so here he is. <laughs> I do, for those of you that never have met my sponsor, I really do have one. He's been my sponsor from, from the beginning. He knew me before, uh, and, I'm, and I'm grateful to that son of a gun. He's, he saved my life um, in the program. Um, but anyway, I'm driving home after this meeting. It's like 11 o'clock at night in Petaluma down the main drag Washington Boulevard and uh, going a little fast because we push the envelope, right? And I see the policeman behind me. And so I pull over into Mary's Pizza Shack because that's a safe parking place. I, I'm concerned that there might be a little bit of wreckage in my past and I might have to leave my car <laughs> unescorted for a while. So I found a good parking spot where it would be okay. And he comes up and he asks for my license and registration. You know, I put, turn off the car, the phone, 10 and two on the wheel and I give him my license and he goes back and calls it in. And then he comes back up and he says, uh, you still live on Inverness Street? And I said, no, I live on, on Baker now. And he goes, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm in sales. And he goes, I'm glad to see you're doing better. Now, I looked at this cop, this young, handsome, strapping, crew cut, tan, you know, fit cop. I never met this guy before in my life. I don't know who the hell he is from Adam. And I said, do I know you? And he goes, yeah, I met you, and it wasn't your best day. 
I'm like, oh, okay, now the dots are connecting up here. I, he was one of the first responders to my house, um, June 3rd, 2001, um, where I was uh, unconscious following a, or in the process of a suicide attempt, having choked down a bottle of pills and trying to end my life. Um, as a direct result of my dysfunctional upbringing and my alcoholism and drug addiction. Fortunately, um, you know, the firemen came, they cut my favorite clothes off me, they carted me out of the house in front of the neighbors in the neighborhood. It was a Sunday morning. And my job that day was to watch my five-year-old son, and I sent him next door to play while dad kills himself. Um, not good model parenting. Uh, and. I think maybe the cop was looking for the kid, you know? Because my, my spouse came home early. That's, what, that's the only reason I'm alive. She came home early from the gym. She was working herself into single shape. Because uh, <laughs> that was coming. And uh, anyway, um, this kid is not there. I'm, I'm damn near dead. There's a bitter note on the table, and the kid is gone, and they can't, no, no, she can't find him. I'm sure she freaked the F out. So, um, anyway, so he must have been one of those guys, you know, a fireman or a policeman that came to the house when she finally called 911. She waited a while. Um, made a couple other calls first. I tried to get a group consensus. You know, what should I do? I'm, I'm teasing, honey, in case you ever hear this. Um, anyway, so he said, I'm glad you're doing better. Have a nice day. And he left. He left me. You know, no ticket, nothing. And, I, man, I was so struck by how our disease diseases have such a ripple effect that I never even considered this poor guy. You know, how many... And how many thousands of people had he seen between, you know, three years ago and that day, and he still remembered me, and he remembered that event, you know, white picket fence, looked good on the outside, wife and kids and job, the whole thing looked great on the outside, and he was probably like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, why is he in this shape? So um, I did amends to the police and fire in Petaluma, but that's a whole other story. I could spend some time on that. Um... So that started my journey into recovery. Now, up here, for anybody who's interested, I have a first edition big book. This is a fake, it's a new cover. It's a 1948 first edition, 11th printing big book. It's worth 500 bucks on eBay. Pretty sure this is my dad's book. It's got writing in it. It's my mom's writing. <laughs> but she was not the alcoholic. Dad was. In fact, there's a couple of cards you know, like we have literature back here. They did too in Billings, Montana. You know, here's the 20 questions. And uh, mm -hmm. it's amazing that it's still, they haven't really changed much in, how many years is that? 60 some? Mm -hmm. I don't know. What's your score? <laughs> <laughs> so just be, be careful with it. You know, don't spill any food on it. Um, <laughs> hey, that's another program. Yeah. Now, here's... So dad obviously didn't get sober as an 18-year-old. He married my mom. They had 10 kids. And they, they separated when uh, I was in the second or third grade. That's when mom got to Al-Anon. She finally smartened up and, you know, heard what they said. And 
she, she took us in the middle of the day after dad went to work over to one of her Al-Anon friends' house, a shirt and, you know, our clothes on our back. That's all we had, really. Um, <clears throat> this is his 1981 uh, 12 and 12, and it's 1981 third edition big book that he got in the rehab. One of the spin drives that he went through. They're not as exciting as that, but, you know, there's, there's the generational nature of alcoholism writ large right there. You know, I have his fourth step, too, that he wrote while he was in rehab. Those were real rehabs, you know, they had you get to the fourth step, not just one, two, three, and out. But he went through a few of them, so maybe he worked up to that, I don't know. <laughs> You know, but he he died when I was 19 years old of this disease. He died in his car. He aspirated on his own bodily fluids. Very unlovely alcoholic death. <clears throat> um, as a result of my upbringing, you know, in that environment, I think I uh, I did not grieve his death. I love my dad. I lo- I still love him. And I'm heartbroken that he's not here. (laughs) But I did not grieve his death. I stuffed it and did not feel the feelings or feel the grief. And that fueled my drinking later. Uh, Because that's how I coped with life. Um, What I learned from him, the solution was you drink. If it's good, you drink. If it's bad, you drink. If it's whatever, you drink. (laughs) Um, I remember riding around in the car with him because it, maybe it was his day to watch me. Uh, he worked nights a lot for the phone company and he would put me in the back of the car as a four or five year old and tell me to look out the back window because he was going to drink his root beer in the front. <laughs> and I thought, well, root beer? I love root beer. How about it? Can I have some? And he said, no, it's not that kind of root beer. You know, mm-hmm. but he was drinking in front of his, his you know, five year old kid. That's kind of what I did later on in life. Um, and in many ways he was killing himself in front of me as well so another pattern you know of dysfunction uh, I got a lot of ground to cover today and there's there's some really key pieces of literature that I want to make sure that I read um, one of them is that a dysfunctional parent will raise dysfunctional children um, and there's really no question about it you know the on the back table there, I left some of the ACA literature out. We, we, we have a big red book is what it's called. It's not a big blue book, it's a big red book. It's published in 2005, so it's more current literature. They, they had the, yeah, there it is. <laughs> Price is right model over there. <laughs> um, and there's some brochures too and schedules of meetings. We have a meeting here Friday at, um, at 6.30. And we do a step study. We study out of what they call the yellow book, which is on the back table there. It's a workbook. This is how you work. This is how you work the steps. Yeah. There's there's writing that happens in that book, and it was a way for me to start to access that unexpressed grief. Um, In the very front of the big red book, there's a definition that I want to read. It's a footnote, and everybody skips it, but I think it's a really important line. It says, an adult children is someone who responds to adult situations with self-doubt. Anybody do that? (laughs) Self-blame or a sense of being wrong or inferior. Oh, man, that's heavy. Um, all, All learned from stages of childhood without help recovery 
We unknowingly operate with ineffective thoughts and judgments as adults. The regression can be subtle, but it is there sabotaging our decisions and our relationships. I know, when I got to ACA, my mind just went... That laundry list, and I'm sorry, I made copies of it. I was going to pass it out, but they moved it on me. I don't know where it ended up. Um, The laundry list was adopted um, by the early founder of ACA in the late 70s, I think, as 14 traits. These are survival traits that we adopted um, in order to cope with the adversity of our childhoods. So let me collect my thoughts a second here. so dad dies, I try the suicide thing, I get kicked into, AC, into AA. The doctor comes in and says, don't you have kids? As I'm, you know, restrained to the frickin' bed. <laughs> yes, I have kids, and he, he shook his finger at me. He said, don't do this anymore. I'm like, okay, doctor's orders, I won't. Does that mean don't kill yourself anymore, or don't drink, or, you know, could you be a little more specific? <laughs> don't do any of it. So. The locks got changed on the house, the marriage was over, and I was out on the street. My sister took me in, saved my life. Again, another person that I'm indebted to for life. Um, And I came to the meetings of AA because I had to. I had to get that little slip signed and prove to her and prove to them and prove to the judge that that I was working a program. And I sat in the back in the half measures row, came late, left early, and avoided people like that guy who solutions. It didn't get any better. I had to go to therapy too. I lied to therapies, therapists my whole life. Decades of lying. And uh, never told them the truth. So of course it wasn't, didn't do me any good. Um, and so we were involved in a, a bitter custody dispute over that five-year-old boy. She cleaned my clock on December 24th, Christmas Eve 2001. Presiding Judge Mark Tanzel of Sonoma County Superior Court said, you are an unfit parent. You have no more legal or physical custody rights. Next case. That was a bottom, and I was dry for six months. So that compelled me into really working the steps um, because I had nothing left, you know. That was it. That was the only thing that really mattered to me. Um, And I started working the steps in earnest. I asked a woman to be my sponsor. (laughs) she told a good story and I thought I could probably buffalo her that didn't work and she led me by the hand to the loudest most obnoxious guy who talked over the time limit the one guy in the whole room I would not ask to be my sponsor and she introduced me to him so fortunately he's kind of a Nazi he's a, I'm sorry for that phrase he's a big book thumper how about that is that a fair statement he uh, said shut up and sit down and let's read the book bring a highlighter a pen and the dictionary and if you forget anything, go back out to your car and get it. And I would show up late, and I'd forget my pen, and I'd forget my highlighter, and I'd forget my book. But he always brought his book for some reason, and so we, we worked through the steps. And uh, around about April of the next year, things were getting better. You know, I started actually working the steps and doing the inventory, doing the writing. We talk about a spiritual toolkit. Here it is. This is my spiritual toolkit. This bag, it's not a toolkit, it's a bag. It's got my steps written down in it. Here's my book, you know. What's the, what's the phrase? A, a book in poor condition means the program probably isn't. It needs a new binding, if anybody knows how to do bindings. 
So that's my toolkit. And in April, I got a little bit of custody back from the from the ex-wife, and uh, you know, I started to have that boy back in my life, and was able to start to go back to work, and not be curled up in a field of ball on my bed all day. Um, and I actually went to ACOA meetings. I went to Al-Anon. I went to everything in the beginning. I wanted to get better in a couple of weeks, and then have everything you know back the way it was. The restraining order kind of prohibited that. Couldn't go back to the house, for example. Um, so the ACOA was it's ACOA, it's ACA now. It really wasn't ready yet. Um, they didn't have the literature. And I wasn't ready because I didn't even have sobriety yet. I didn't have emotional sobriety. And so I couldn't, you know, physically I needed to stay sober. To take on another thing, Al-Anon and and ACA was just too much, so I just focused on AA and got sober. About 13 years in, um, I found myself repeating my dysfunctional behavior in a relationship. I think we read in the, you know, we're attracted to alcoholics or people that we can rescue. And I was writing out this amends to this woman that I'd been in a relationship with where I lost myself. And I happened to stumble across another amends that I'd written that, God damn it, was verbatim. <laughs> it was like identical. I could have just took out the old one and copied it. It was really it was the same amends about my part and what I was doing. And that kind of blew my mind. And that's when I said, all right, I need more. You know, I've got physical sobriety. I don't really have emotional sobriety. I'm tired of this pattern of trying to rescue and fix everybody else in the world. It's killing me. And so I came to ACA. I read the laundry list online. And uh, I went to four meetings a week for two years. I went to Concord Monday night. I went to Danville Sunday night. I went to Berkeley, which is a great meeting. It's a big meeting. Tuesday night. I went to Walnut Creek Wednesday night. And then after a couple of years of getting tired of driving everywhere, we started a meeting here in Benicia on Friday night. So. Um, we also started an intergroup for ACA, so there's 28 meetings now under the umbrella of the ACA, the East Bay, Greater East Bay ACA intergroup to try to make sure that that message gets carried because what I got in ACA was maybe a glimpse of my dysfunction and how to not live that way anymore. Um, the ACA steps, so, so my other sponsor, my co-sponsor in ACA, Sponsorship is different there because ACAs, I guess a lot of alcoholics, ACAs don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. And then ACA just doesn't work if a sponsor is like top down and tells you, you know, you need to do this or whatever. We just say, F you, get out of my face and go find somebody else. So we, we kind of do co-sponsors or fellow travelers, they're called an ACA. And um, this gentleman, Tom, um, took me through the ACA steps, and it took me 18 months. If you want to see another spiritual toolkit, here's this one. This is my yellow book. Um, I'm a little compulsive perfectionist, so I organized it and put tabs on it. And index pages, you know. Anyway, there's a, there's a very extensive fourth step <coughs> in that that's top secret. You can't read that. I'm not going to pass that around. <laughs> He says, Tom says, AA is like high school, Al-Anon is like college, and then ACA is like grad school. So being an overachiever, I wanted to get the graduate degree. Um, 
And and it really, you know, we we talk in AA about what drinking behind the we had to get down to the causes and conditions of why we drank. And then I think I feel it's my opinion, of course, all this is my opinion. ACA gets you down to what are the causes and conditions of why we drink. Why do we continue to do these patterns, this dysfunction? You know, why do we constantly relapse? Because it's a coping skill, it's a survival mechanism that we learned as children. Um <clears throat> What are some of the other traits? Let me look here real quick. Um, oh, yeah. As part of working the ACA steps, I did a family tree. They have you write out and label the people in your family, not to be judgmental, but who's an alcoholic, who's a codependent, you know, who's a, who's a whatever. Put labels, who's a perfectionist, who's a, a negative thinker who's a negative person and so I did this I did this inventory of my family and it again it blew my mind because I realized how pervasive alcoholism and addiction are on both sides of my family <clears throat> at the time I was doing that I went to a play in LA my name is Bill W maybe some of you've seen it that was a second cousin who was playing Lois in that play her, she, she's a lifelong Al-Anon. Her mom had committed suicide because of alcoholism. And her mom, my grandma's sister, was also an alcoholic. And so how ironic that, you know, here we are in our family. We're, we're actually playing parts in a theater about the disease of alcoholism because it goes back. Anyway, so my dad's dad was an alcoholic and it, just, it was astonishing to me. Everybody in my family has some form of dysfunction is kind of what I concluded as a result of that. So when I come in here, I have the temerity to think that I can change overnight what, what has been generations in the making. I think I can turn that tanker around on a dime going the other way. It just does not happen. And I ran right into that in my disease, in alcoholism, and in ACA, and even in sobriety or sobriety. So... The message there to me was be patient, be kind to yourself. It's not going to happen overnight. And it takes time to undo or to start to undo things that have literally been generations in the making. So that's kind of, you know, I applaud everybody who's in recovery because that's the task you've taken on. If you're anything like, if your family's anything like mine, you know, you're taking on generations of behaviors, patterns, denial that, um, are deeply unconsciously enmeshed in us. And it takes tremendous work to, to dig that up, take a look at it, and then decide what to do with it. The ACA program also talks about, you know, we didn't have any choice as children. This was just given to us. There's a, there's a story in the ACA book about <clears throat> you're standing up on a tower and you're looking across the distance and you can see a line of people like a wagon train, you know, back going across the prairie and they're, they're handing a bundle forward. And this is the symbolic of the generations of our families that, that pass this bundle of dysfunction from generation to generation. And then it talks about, well, there's my parents. I can see my parents as children accepting this bundle from my grandparents without any question. It's like, okay, here's guilt, shame, you know, remorse, uh, dysfunction, denial. And we just take it. And we don't even know what we're accepting. Um, (laughs) 
so that was a powerful image for me. And I, I started to realize, you know, that my parents were, were, they didn't have any choice either. I couldn't blame my dad. I couldn't blame my mom for being a professional codependent. She was the best codependent to my dad, you know. She put up with 25 years of his bullshit and a bunch of kids and a bunch of moves and a bunch of geographics. We went from Montana to Alaska. Um, I have, you know, all these siblings and they were all born in different towns in Montana and Alaska because they moved all the time. I moved 27 times as a kid up through high school. Um, so I got, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, and of, and of being unkind to myself and putting myself in relationships with people. And I'm not just talking about romantic. I'm talking about friendships, too. I would find the wounded dove, man or woman, take them under my wing, try to fix them, try to give them the message of recovery, and then get mad when he didn't take it, you know, didn't accept it, or didn't stay sober. Um, <clears throat> and that's not my job. <laughs> I'm not God. I'm not the highest power in the universe, as my sponsor frequently tells me. It's not my job to get you sober. It's my job to get me sober and to stay sober. So today, um, how is it different? You know, that's, that's what it was like, you know, and I can go into more details about the trauma of an adult child in, in, in an alcoholic home, violence, police, parents fighting, parents beating up other siblings car thefts, incarcerations, you know, I don't need to go into all that. I don't want to trigger anybody that's had that. This, this comment came up from somebody who went to a speaker meeting last night and she said I was triggered by the trauma that came up. So I'm not going to go into all that, but it was there, you know, we got, as, as a four and five year old, I got swept out the back door because the cops were coming in the front and my big sister and brother were sitting on my dad holding him down until the cops got there. The phone had been ripped out of the wall so that we couldn't call the police. <clears throat> and that, you know, my dad was on a first name basis with the police in Billings, Montana. And I would, I, I, I knew where the bars were in Montana because I sat in the car outside the bar waiting for dad until all hours of the night. I had the promises of dad of things that we were gonna do that completely fell through on, on Father Sunday in Cub Scouts, my sisters and mom helped me bake the cake. Because <laughs> dad wasn't there, he was gone. That's not traumatic, like violent, but it's like, wait a minute, isn't dad supposed to be here? And then another morning, um, so, so one of those nights where the police were there, um, and then I'll end with this part of it, um, we start packing to go camping in Whitefish, Montana, you know, a resort area the next day. And the cops had came and gotten dad and carted him away. And this morning, we're all pretending like nothing's different. We're having fun. We're going camping. And I kind of thought as a four or five-year-old, hey, mom, does anybody know what happened last night? And why is dad being allowed to go camping with us? Because he should be in trouble. He should be in the corner with his nose to the wall. Or something should go down. I knew, my little brain knew that something was not right. And she said, honey... Don't worry about it. He doesn't remember anything. So there's denial right there. And the message is to a kid, just ignore it. 
it'll it'll go away and uh, we need to get on with our lives we're not going to deal with that ugliness we're going to go on so sweep it under the carpet that's the story of my life right there um, until I got into recovery <clears throat> so here's a here's another little passage um, amends means making things right the first amends is to ourself we were we have harmed ourselves with codependency drugs sex work gambling food like no others we have abandoned ourselves and judged ourselves without mercy countless times we've stayed in abusive relationships long past the point of sanity because we were terrified of being alone we have acted insane that's my story too you know I stay in every job too long I stay in every abusive relationship too long because I don't want to leave I don't want to be alone I don't want to be abandoned and if there's any hint that you're going to abandon me I'm going to abandon you first we matter we can forgive ourselves there's also this concept called a praise deficit and ACA's children of, adop- of alcoholics suffer from a praise deficit our parents were busy and preoccupied with either their codependence or their alcoholism and they didn't praise us enough we were not nurtured as children should be and we look for that in our adult I look for that I'm not going to talk about you guys I look for that in my adult life through relationships through a pretty girl who says how handsome I am through a boss that says what a good worker I am to a company that pays me a bunch of money you know all of those efforts at affirmation of, of, of praising myself are for not because it just it never measured up it didn't fill the hole that I had <clears throat> um, so in, a, in ACA the difference between ACA and, a, and AA and Al-Anon is the 8th and the ninth step are amends to yourself and that blew my mind I'm like I need to go apologize to all these people I've harmed my sponsor said you will do no such thing first you apologize to yourself you make amends to yourself you make things right with yourself and then we can talk about getting on but that's going to take a while um, and then another part of that corollary to that is that we can't make amends to people who are still in dysfunction because they can't hear it and this is very contrary to AA right you know you make the amends no matter what well I'm wasting my time if you're still in dysfunction because you're going to blame me you know and and I might you know I might still be in the blaming you mode so that's not going to help any either um so I I drove my bus through that loophole he said uh you know it says you don't have to make amends to somebody if they're still in dysfunction I'm like okay I'm off the hook before recovery Many ACAs had relationships in which, in which they thought they were in love with another person. In reality, they were trapping or manipulating that person to extract affection. Whew. Anybody been in a marriage like that? Let me read that again. In a reality, they were trapping or manipulating that person to extract affection. Extract, like to mine it out of them. This behavior creates the response we fear most, abandonment. Who likes to be trapped and have affection extracted from them? Like, what am I, a dentist? I'm going to pull your affection out. (laughs) Nobody wants to be in that kind of a relationship. Jesus, I don't. Pardon my French. Um, 
So that we couldn't do anything different than our parents did. We had no choice. Generational behavior till a decision is made to change. Whew. I, I, I married my dad in a way. I was in relationships with my dad in a female version. Um, I mirrored my mom's codependency in those relationships. I became the codependent to the alcoholic and I would take care of her and pay her bills and you know, try to make everything rosy so she could just get sober. <coughs> I did that a couple of times. I did that with my son's mom, who still, God bless her, you know, still in practicing doing research. I couldn't keep her sober, and I couldn't love her into sobriety. <clears throat> so when I do those kinds of dynamics, I lose myself. I, I lose my sense of self. And uh, I give up. I abandon myself. So here's my question, you know, that gets asked at ACA. What am I doing today to abandon myself? And how can I change that behavior? So, yeah, let's talk about what's changed. I have this, you know, 24-year-old son now. Um, He he went into the Marines, thank God, and uh, did his four years and got out and went to a couple of years of college and he may be, you know, he's definitely an ACA because he does everything I did. And he may be an alcoholic. I don't know. That's for him to decide. The courts decided he was. The Marine Corps decided he was. And uh, he got to feel some consequences of that. But he, he is absolutely a blessing in my life today. And I, and I have a chance to rebuild my relationship with him. Him who I abandoned and sent next door while I was trying to kill myself. I now can be present in his life, even though he lives in San Diego, in a different way. Like I can text him today and say, I love you, son. I'm proud of you. You matter. You have value. All the things I never said to him growing up. I was as critical to him and to his sister, my stepdaughter, as my dad was to me. You know, when we're, when we're sweeping the rug because the vacuum cleaner is broken as kids, alcoholic house, right? The window's broken in the door and the vacuum cleaner doesn't work. So our child was to sweep the damn rug. And dad sat, sat in his chair right here where Charles is and said, hey, that fiber's out of order. You need to go back over that, fix that, get, the, get those fibers off. How crazy is that? How insane is that? You know, a shag rug all going in the same direction. That's insane. So it's no wonder I'm so damn neurotic. You know, hypervigilance is another trait of an adult child of alcoholic um, and actually the big book does say that somewhere in there maybe Paul can find it where it says you know adult or alcoholics raise children that are neurotic it's in the book somewhere but anyway I'm hyper vigilant I know the exits to the to the room I opened the outside lobby I know this door is unlocked I've scanned the room for who's going to be a threat who might fight me I know how to exit if there's an earthquake and if I don't know your name, I'm keeping an extra eye on you. <laughs> so that's hypervigilance. Um, and that can kind of, that can overwhelm a person. You know, if that's the way you go around your whole day every day, I know who's on their phone, who's falling asleep, all that stuff. That's crazy. I have other things to do than pay attention to all you guys. <laughs> so, I, so I get to like try to not be judgmental of my son and not be critical of him and to praise him. He just ran a marathon. That's insanity. Good job, kid. I flew down there to San Diego, and I was moral support, man. I was like, go, Brandon. 
and his buddy and his wife ran the half marathon. That blows my mind. He's just like casual. Oh, I think we're going to run the marathon in a couple months, Dad. I'm like, don't you have to train like a year? for This is how I would do it. I would hire a coach. I would run, you know, myself into the ground for at least a year before I even attempted. Because if I failed, if I had to quit halfway through, that would be humiliating. I wouldn't run it until I could know that I'm going to win it. That's an adult child for you. Overachiever, <laughs> right? Hero child, all that. So the negative thinking, the codependent. Hey, what are you doing today? Where are you? What's going on? Who are you out with? Are you drinking? No. There's no place for that today. He doesn't need that. I don't need to keep him sober. He has his own higher power. It's not me. Famous quote from somebody here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's dramatically different today. Uh, my mom died in March. Uh, 89, she was, she had a long and full life. She had 18 grandkids and a bunch of great grandkids. And I lost track, you know. They all had a number. She gave them all a number, the great grandkids. It was like one through 18 on their little hats for Christmas one year. (laughs) They're proud of that. You know, like, I'm number five. I'm number eight in our family. And uh, I think that's a lucky number in the Chinese culture, right? So I'm hanging on to it. My oldest brother died of alcoholism. My youngest sister, the youngest child, was born with cerebral palsy because my mom was 44 years old when she had her. And uh, she, mom almost died. You know, that's another probably example of dysfunction. Who has children when they're 44 years old, except in an alcoholic relationship? Anyway, I loved my mom. She was probably my best friend. Um, apologies to some of you guys and gals in here you know I would talk to my mom she lived in Alaska and Michigan and Colorado and um, it, it grieves me today to not be able to pick up the phone and call her and help her with her iPhone <laughs> or her MacBook you know or to just call and talk baseball she was a big baseball fan she loved baseball she, she was the scorekeeper for my team when I was in Little League you know my brother ran a snack bar the capitalist. He's retired. <laughs> I pretty much hate him. I'm never going to retire. Um, but anyway, mom died. She made me the trustee of her trust. Thanks, mom. I have all older brothers and sisters to deal with. I love them all. We're all still close. We've been bonded by this, you know, craziness and dysfunction growing up. And, um, and I had to butt heads with them a little bit now and then in, in, the, in this process. They don't agree with everything I say. And I, it's not my job to please them in this process. It's my job to take care of what mom said she wanted done with her trust. So that's an ongoing issue. My second oldest brother just had a stroke, almost died as a direct result of this disease. He's walked by AA a few times. He's, you know, had a cigarette outside but never really came in and worked the program. And, and I don't think he's got a pacemaker. He can't use one side of his body. He can't talk, but he still smokes. <laughs> and he drinks if he can get his hands on it. Um, but anyhow, that's different today, you know? Like I could not, as a younger person, as a person before recovery, 
have dealt with the authority figures of my older siblings in a loving and kind but firm way. I would have told them to F off, get out of my face. It's my way or the highway. It's black or white. And you're just causing trouble, so you need to go. That's not how it is today. I love my sisters and brothers. You know, I realize we're all imperfect and, and we're all in dysfunction. And, and none of them have really found their ways to recovery yet. And that's heartbreaking to me. I can't push it down their throat. I'll give them a book. I'll send them an article. You know, I'll talk to them about it. If they want to go to a meeting, great, let's go. I'll take you. But they got to raise their hand first. I learned that here. I can't get you sober. I can't get you emotionally sane or sober. <clears throat> um, so we're gonna we're gonna read the promises at one point. You know, ACA has their version of the promises as well. Um, and I guess that's kind of you know where I wanted to end up with. Did I hand those out? Yeah. So I'm gonna go through those a little bit and then probably wrap up. I was a trainer in one of my careers, so I want to, I'm like, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> um, loving and accepting ourselves. So I'm trying this new thing. This is kind of radical. I don't know if you should try it, but I look in the mirror and I say, I love you. I was so uncomfortable doing that. And if you haven't done it, try it, because you'll know what I'm talking about. It's getting easier, but it's still hard. Um, fear of authority figures, as I've talked about. I've been afraid of every boss and every older man in my life. And guess what? I'm old and I got gray hair now. God damn it. I'm one of them old guys. And I'm still the little kid in my mind, you know, of afraid of whatever any of you is going to say, even if you're 20 years younger than me. Don't confront me because I don't know. I might panic and crap my pants or something. Um, but today, I realize you put your pants on the same way. And I think that's connected to realizing my parents were just humans, you know. They got together and they made a bunch of babies. I was one of them. That was their role in my life. They created me. Um, <clears throat> they're people. I can forgive them today for, for, for them inheriting the dysfunction and passing it on unconsciously to me. So, you know, I got fired from a big shot job in the city like five years ago. And I was like, okay. He said, you want me to go through all the reasons why we're letting you go? I'm like, nah, I don't care. I really didn't. I'm like, that's your damn opinion. I know what I did. I did a good job. I showed up. I did what I thought I should do. I exercised my best judgment. If you disagree with it, that's your business. It's none of my business what you think of me. If you're my boss, that gives you the right to fire me. So, okay. So now I have a better boss. I work for myself. <laughs> so nobody would hire me or I didn't want to be working for them and uh, you know my, my standard of living is pretty much what it was back then except I have a lot more freedom I'm a lot happier and um, I do I love the work that I do um, I help other people that's my job I help other people <clears throat> um, relationships <laughs> yeah so we face our abandonment issues, we'll be attracted by strengths and become more tolerant of weaknesses. I've had to end some relationships in sobriety. I'd never had done that before in my life. I had never just like shut the door on a relationship. But I did that out of respect for myself, 
because I was unwilling to continue to engage in the dysfunctional dynamic of that relationship. It was harsh, and again, I had never done it before. I still question it and think about it every day, but my new relationships are with people that are in recovery, that are, that are striving to get to, to emotional sobriety, or they're not alcoholics and they're not in the program. I have a lot of friends outside of the program. Um, and, and they're, you know, intuitively today, if I meet somebody and we just don't jive, I don't fret about it. I don't try to please them. I don't try to make them in my fan club. I just move on because they got their life to live and I don't need to clutter it up. Um, another gift of, of recovery is, um, you know, becoming a little more playful. I don't know how to have fun really, or I didn't. Now I have this thing called an instant pot. It's a, it's a pressure cooker, right? And uh, I love cooking food in that thing. I made three things today, because I actually have three instant pots. One's a, one's a loner, okay? One's a loner, and then the other two are different sizes. But I made the peach cobbler, I made the, um, the well, the corn, yeah, shut the corn, and, and the sweet potatoes, yeah. And I love doing that stuff, man. I love, because it's self-care. I cook healthy food instead of going to frickin' McDonald's. I can't eat McDonald's anymore. It really makes me ill. So self-care is another thing I've learned in ACA. Getting enough rest, right? Having a job where I'm not insane. Um, taking care of myself. I'm working on the sugar addiction. That's next. That's a lifelong struggle as well. But, you know, hopefully we'll get there because I can learn to love myself and take care of myself. Healthy boundaries and, and limits. I didn't know what a boundary was. I was a doormat in any relationship. You could just drive right over me and I would smile and say thank you. <laughs> you want to back up and do it again? Go ahead. <laughs> so today, again, you know, boundaries. Like, you know, with one of my sisters, I had to draw a very firm boundary because she's like spinning in her dysfunction and I had to just say, I'm not going to participate in that anymore. I love you, but... I can't do it. So um, that's that's been huge, boundaries and and even within the rooms of recovery, you know, the safety statement we read, right? You know, thirteen step and it's not just romantic hitting the newcomer, trying to pick up the newcomer. It's financial. It's it's emotional. It's it's all kinds of exploiting a weakness in somebody else and new people coming in are more vulnerable than any other time in their life you know because they don't have the booze to cope and they're asking for help and then a predator swoops right in and says let me help you um so that's an example of a boundary you know we have to help the newcomer and not exploit them or take advantage of them I don't know what else I want to say. Uh, what's that line about the old ideas? Some of us held on to our old ideas and the result was no until we let go, absolutely. Old ideas are things like denial, that, that it took me a lot of work to scratch at, to start to uncover, like grieving my dad's death, you know? That, that was buried really deep. I had to really work at it to, to get that up to the surface. 
And as a consequence, when my mom died, I cried like a baby when I walked into the hotel room and saw that she was not long for us. You know, I just burst out into tears. And that was not ever allowed in my family. Men don't cry. But I cried like a baby. Um, like a man. Like a man. Yeah. I cried like a man that, that can feel things today. <clears throat> so our old ideas, you know. I'll be okay if I pick up just one drink. Or I'll just have one. You'll never drink on the truth. You always drink on a lie. Right? But somebody else told me that. You'll never drink on the truth. What's the truth? I can't have just one. I'm not going to have just one. It'll be okay. I'm not hurting anybody. These are all lies. You know? And then, in relationships too. You know, my behavior, how I act will influence you. That's an old idea. doesn't work. I've tried it for 50 years. It doesn't work. So, any closing remarks? Over there in the corner. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Any <laughs> well, if they want to know where it's at, neurotic. Family yeah. afterwards in, in the A book. There it is. Page 122. Did I say he loves the big book? <laughs> Page 122. You guys can find it. <laughs> so I heard this other thing at a meeting, and I'll, I'll close with this, and then I want to read these promises. Um, you can read one and pass it on, but let me just end with this. What what meeting was it? This candlelight where. The guy was asking about a relationship issue and, and his sponsor said, read page 69. And it talks about now about sex, blah, blah, blah. And it goes through all the, you know, safe and sound sex ideal. And then he said, read page 96. <laughs> so if you haven't done that before, do it. It's hilarious. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. Page 69, sex, 96. So it's actually working with others. You know, it says get it. You know, if 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 this one doesn't want it, find another one. Find a few anyway. <laughs> so let's read. Let's let's read the promises, and then we'll close. If you if you flip over that that serenity prayer, you can find a closing prayer on the other side. Yeah. Go ahead, Robin. Okay. Promises. One. We will discover our real identities by loving and accepting ourselves. Uh, two, our self-esteem will increase as well as we give ourselves approval on a daily basis. Three, fear of authority figures and the need to people please will leave us. Four. Uh, four, our ability to share intimacy will grow inside us. Five, as we face our abandonment issues, we will be attracted by strengths and become more tolerant of weaknesses. Six, we enjoy feeling stable, peaceful, and financially secure. Seven, we will learn how to play and have fun in our lives. Eight, we will choose to love people who can love and be responsible for themselves. Nine, healthy boundaries and limits will become easier for us to set. Ten, fears and failures of sex believe us as we improving make healthier choices. Eleven, uh, with help from our AC, ACA support group, we will slowly release our dysfunctional behaviors. 
and 12. Gradually, with our higher power self, we learn to accept the best. And, and get, get it. it. Okay, let's close. Is that right, Sean? Can we close, Sean? Close. Okay. okay. Time. Hey, let me turn this off real fast. Good job.